The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning and welcome. I want to welcome those who are joining us online today for our time of worship. My name is Jeff Long and I serve here as uh, the lead pastor and have the opportunity to preach and teach weekly. We are studying through Psalms and we're at Psalm 14. While you're finding your place in your Bible, I just want to explain to you a little bit of what uh, transpired here today. The young man who just led from the piano here to my left, his name is Jordan Farmer. Uh, he is uh, moving in a couple of weeks to Kentucky where his family just moved to and he'll be going to uh, college at Boyce College, which is on the campus of Southern Seminary, uh, where they have a degree program in worship ministry. So you need to understand a value that we have as Parkwood and something that we put into practice that you saw today. We value training the next generation of pastors to lead in the church. We value in training the next generation of leaders, both male and female, to lead in the church. So this is a teaching hospital, if you will. So it's a place where they're gonna have opportunity to step forward and to lead. And I pray that you would continue to encourage these young men and women as they have opportunity among us to exercise their gifts and to grow. And we trust will be used of God uh, into the future all over the world. I also wanna thank those that joined online. This week I had two conversations with people. Uh, one was a waitress named Stephanie. Uh, who watch online uh, due to work and other things. So I'm grateful to those of you up there who do that and allowing people to watch and to join us uh, in worship, uh, not only today, but sometime later in the week as the, the services are available at all times. So we come to Psalm 14. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, there's one under a chair close to you, page 453, if you'd like to look there with me. Psalm 14 invites you to stand as I read God's word. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all of the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? They are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of the people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we come to your word, that you would make it clear that I would not in any way confound those who have gathered here or those that are listening online. God, that you would use the clarity of your word to lead to the clarity of preaching that would result in a rejoicing and glad heart because of your salvation. Reveal now the truth about people and lead us to Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Here's the main idea of this text. The Lord graciously reveals the truth about people. What do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. 
God could have left you in the dark and not told you this. He could have just let you figure it out on your own, which you never would have. So God graciously has revealed the truth about people. In 1908, the Times requested of authors all over the world to write in response to be a series of articles in the Times newspaper and answer to this question. What is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, a famous apologist at that time, wrote this simple letter to the Times. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Now, unless you missed it, the question was, what is wrong with the world? I am. The Russian poet Turgenev wrote, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. This teaching is the basic principle of what theologians call human depravity or total depravity. It's the truth about human beings. If you were thinking, this kind of sounds similar, I've heard this somewhere else in the Bible, the answer is you're right. Romans 3 quotes directly from Psalm 14. Also, if you've read the Psalms carefully, you've noticed that Psalm 53 is almost identical to Psalm 14. We'll deal with that many months or years later when we get to Psalm 53. <laughs> Here's what needs to come to your mind here. This is to the choir master of David. This is a song to be sung. So for those of you who think that every song is to be about the praise of God, sometimes songs are about the truth about people. So this song is instructive about who humans are that leads us to the hope of the gospel. Now, this is very timely. The psalm begins, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But we live in an age that people would say, the fool says in his heart, there is a God. So we need to give attention to this and understanding as to what's being said here. The first major principle we wanna see is that all people are sinful and sin. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, the fool says in his heart, no God. Now the question is, how did they get to this point? Is this describing outright atheism? Now to understand it, we need to unfold a little bit the language in what the Hebrew actually says. I think it's unfortunate that we choose to use the English word fool here. Because when you read the word fool, and when I read the word fool, you think dumb or stupid. That's not what the word means. The word means godless or senseless or aggressively perverse. So we're talking about someone who is coming from a godless, perverse perspective. So before I move on, let me just break down, I would identify five categories of atheism some of them may be in this room, I would argue probably several. The first is intellectual atheism. That's the person who logically cannot fit God into their rational mind. Unless they can prove it with something they can see, taste, or touch in the material world, they cannot then believe it or reject believing it. 
second is what I would call conditioned atheism. This is what you find in atheistic, communistic places like China, to where you're raised in a system of education to where it is godless. And frankly, you've been taught there is no God and it just never really registers in your mind. It's not something you think about. So interacting with with Pastor Scott, who spent years in China, he, he described this. It's just not in their radar. They're not even thinking about God. Just been conditioned their whole life to think that way. Very close to that, number three, is what I would call speculative atheism. This is a person whose heart has become so darkened and their conscience so seared that God never crosses their mind anymore. In other words, they've so steeped themselves in sin, they're not even thinking about God. Number four is what I would call wishful atheism. This is the person who says, I hope there's not a God. They were worried about it. They're just banking on they hope there's not one. The fifth form of atheism is what I think is being addressed primarily in Psalm 14, and that is what I would call practical atheism. Practical atheism is a person who lives as if there's not a God. Now, it's very specific. So when you look in the language, no Elohim. So this is not a generic word for God. This is a very specific word for the God of the Bible, which could be translated or to mean the righteous judge or the ruler of all. So here's what the, 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 the speculative, perverse person has said. There's no God of the Bible. I'm not gonna answer to this God. I'm not going to have to respond to this God. So I'm going to live as if he's not there. Job describes this person in Job 21 when he says, what is the almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have to pray to him? In other words, he's irrelevant to my life. The common response I have found is I have tried to interact with people in this part of the world. Now I'm, I'm not... I've been other places and there've been different interactions, but this is the common interaction that I find right here in the Gaston County Bible Belt South. If you press into people and you ask them, what do they believe? This is a common answer. Well, I have my own personal beliefs about God. Now, don't let a person stop there. Respectfully, here's what you need to say. What do you mean by that? Describe this God to me. And here's what you're going to get every time if you'll pay attention and you'll listen carefully. You'll get someone who has formed in their mind a manageable deity. A God who is responding to the way that they want him to respond. Now Roman, Romans describes this. This is Romans chapter 1 if you'd like to turn there. And I just hold your place there in Romans 1 because I'm going to come back to that area of the scripture again in a moment. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise, they became fools. You notice that same word is just repeated over and over again, fools, foolish. They exchanged the 
glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So in other words, they came up with the form of God that was comfortable to them. All right. We got someone who's come up with their own form of God. So I just want to ask the question now. And I think this is the question Psalm 14 is answering. Why? Why do people come to the conclusion, no God, or they form God in the image that they want God to be? The answer is very simple. Sin. You say, well, you Baptist conservatives, that's your answer for everything. There's an argument here. So don't turn me off yet. The question is, which came first? No God or sin? As I've interacted with people who've grown up in this local church or young people or adults who grew up in a Bible-believing church who then either begin to question their faith or to outright reject their faith, I have found that, that two things lead to the issues that result in the questioning. Two things happen. Number one, the, the young adult or the adult gets exposed to intellectual arguments that we as the church are scared to ask, that we're, we're scared to discuss, that we're scared to bring to the forefront. So they get to college and somebody with a PhD behind their name knocks Christianity out from under their feet they try to interact with someone back here like me and we fumble around with, with less than honest and less than thorough explanations and they come to the conclusion, you can't answer it, there are no answers, there's no God. At the same time, something else is happening. They are exposed to the opportunity to sin. Mama ain't watching. Daddy ain't checking. So they can do what they want to do and experiment with what they want to do and they go further and further and further. So I have asked this question hundreds of times to adults and young adults. So are you saying to me that you're rejecting God so you can sin? And I usually get what I just got right here, silence. Silence. Because at our core, here's what we know. Back to Psalm 14. Now the explanation is coming. The fool says in his heart, no God. Why? They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. In Romans chapter 3, it says, as it is written... This is verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So yesterday I'm interacting with a young adult and having this very similar conversation. I didn't plan it. It just happened. It was just one of those things that just transpired in my life yesterday. And here I'm working on this sermon And in the midst of it, he said, I want you to listen to this lecture by this renowned psychologist. I said, okay, be glad to. So we sat and listened to this lecture and this dude was brilliant. 
Just absolutely brilliant. And he made the argument from the Bible about Cain that we are all totally depraved. And then he drew some conclusions. I'll come back to this later in the message. He drew some conclusions. <laughs> and one of the conclusions was, we're all totally depraved, so here's what we all need to do. We need to do better. Now, I'm not the smartest man in the room, but if we're all totally depraved, can I just ask you something? How are we going to do better? It's awfully quiet in the room. Well, let's press on in the psalm to answer my question. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand or seek after God. So the Lord is fully aware of us, so we can all be discussing there's no God. Well, God is God, and he's on his throne, and he knows everything about every one of us, and he looks to see if there's anybody who understands or anybody that's seeking after him, and he sees no one comprehends him apart from him, and no one seeks him, no one worships him, because, verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now I have a question. Is that a hyperbole? You say, what's a hyperbole? Is that an overstatement? Is that an exaggeration? That no one does good, not even one. Now, listen carefully to me. If I press in on a lot of you good Baptists sitting in this room, you think it's a hyperbole. This is what I found of years of pastoring in this part of the world. People at their root believe that most people are basically Now, the Bible turns that argument on its head. There is no one who is basically good, not even one. Now, here's what some of you think you're doing. Some of you think you're raising your kids in a Christian home and they're going to be good the rest of their life. Not going to work. The unconverted heart will always pursue what the unconverted heart wants. Always. Martin Lloyd-Jones pastored in the mid-20th century in London, England. He had been the physician to the queen and God called into pastoral ministry. He was a brilliant man. I think one of the best expositors of scripture the church has ever known. They set up a ministry at Oxford University where he was going to preach on Friday nights and it would be followed by question and answer. The very first sermon he preached, they had a, a fairly large hall, students and professors showed up. Then he went to a separate room to do question and answer. They thought just a few people. The room was packed. It was standing room only. The first person to stand up and ask Dr. Jones a question or to make a statement said, Dr. Jones, your sermon could have been preached to a congregation of farmers and common laborers. And when he got that out of his mouth, the room erupted into laughter. This condescending smart people laughter. You ever been around it? Undaunted, Dr. Jones gathered himself and said, young man, I may be a heretic. But as I understand the Bible, both graduates, undergraduates, and professors of Oxford University are ordinary human beings and miserable sinners, just like farmers and common laborers. 
Now, that young man got to something going on here in G-Town. We people that go to church, we good. We good people. We even have a phrase for it where I'm from. They're just good country people. Just good people. <laughs> the problem is the Bible knows what happens in good people, country people's homes and hearts. He knows. And there's none who is good, not even one. Now, back to Psalm 14. We press on and we see that godless people seek to devour the Lord's people. So the person who's come to the conclusion, no God, this practical atheist, no God, they're not going to stop there. It says, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Now, if, you, if, if you're not paying attention, there is a shift in the discussion. God goes from talking about all people to a very specific group of people, his people or my people. So I've got to ask the question, who are the Lord's people? Now, if you look very closely at verse four, the answer is there. If you think wider and you think biblically, it has to do with call upon the Lord. Romans chapter 10, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Here are the Lord's people. The Lord's people are those who understand the argument of Romans that no one is good, no one does righteous, that Christ alone has died for them, and they call on the name of the Lord to save them. Those are the Lord's people, and they are a distinct people. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 describes them. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of the Savior. Because these people have called on the Lord and trusted in the Lord, he has set them apart and saved them and done something very distinct in their life. Now, here's what the argument of, of Psalm 14 is. Because God has set apart and saved this distinct group of people, those who are practical atheists commit evil against those people and they eat them up, they consume them, they devour them. Even as the Lord is a witness through them that they call on the name of the Lord. Now, why is it that they attack these people calling in the name of the Lord? Because here's what they think. We're doing fine without God. In fact, we're doing better than you miserable people. So they treat them with disdain and, and they consume them. Now, it's a real subtle argument. As we move to the third and final point, I just wanna make this transition. Though these people don't call on the name of the Lord, it does not mean they aren't affected by the Lord's people, because they are. The last thing we see the Lord saves his people. Verse five starts with this phrase. There they are in great terror. So while they're consuming God's people, denying there's a God, down deep in their guts, terror. So let me describe it from a preacher's perspective for a minute, all right? There are some unique things about what I do. 
I have had people more than one time just literally being around me and knowing that I'm a preacher shake physically. Like I've, I've been in restaurants where people pick up their glass. You say, well, they're scared of you. No, they're not scared of me. They're scared of what I represent. That's what they're afraid of. I'm the first person out of a funeral. You know, I do the benediction. I step in front of the casket and out. Well, I'm not the first person out. The smokers beat me. And I'm not belittling smokers in the room. Here's what they do. I have literally stood behind the casket and watched somebody light a cigarette and draw that thing all the way down to the filter. Why are they doing that? They're scared to death. This is now common. I'm not making this up. It is common. Almost every funeral we do now, somebody's inebriated. Now, they're not sloppy, falling down drunk, but when you're meeting with the family, the smell of alcohol will reek off their breath. Why are they doing that? They're scared to death. Or, let me say it this way, they're scared of death. Deep in the core of a person who says, no God, there's still this fear. Now, how is this fear brought about? Because here's what they see. Look at verse five. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor. Now, God's speaking directly to the wicked. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Spurgeon said it this way, denying the existence of fire does not prevent a man from burning when he falls into the fire. Doubting the existence of God will not stop the judge of all the earth from destroying the rebel who breaks his laws. And what Spurgeon saw there is what's in verse five. For Elohim is with the generation of the righteous. Literally, the righteous judge is with the generation of the just or the innocent. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought nobody did good. Where'd these righteous people come from? How did they come to be? Thank God for the rest of the Bible. Turn to Ephesians chapter two and we're gonna answer where they came from. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, by the way, just pause for a minute. If you're one of those people who said you've been a Christian your whole life, you don't believe the Bible. And I mean what I just said. Because if you think you've been a Christian your whole life, you've got to deny verse 12. That there was a point in time when you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's true of each of us because no one is righteous, no, not even one. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It is through Christ alone that we are made righteous, that we are saved, that we are made right with God. That is not any doing of ourselves. It is through his blood and through his work on the cross alone. And because of God's work, we are now God's people. And 
What we need to remember and what the wicked who attack God's people remember need to remember is that the Lord is the refuge of his people. Now this led Ralph Davis to write concerning verse six, there should be a sign over God's people. Beware of the sheep. Just think about that for a minute. Beware of the sheep. Because if you touch God's people, you're going to find yourself sooner or later having to deal with the righteous judge of the universe. Verse seven. So think this, think about this. These are God's people being oppressed by the wicked, the godless. God is our our refuge. They, They can't take our salvation, our righteousness from us but they can, they can make life miserable for us. So this leads David to pray in the context of his suffering, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. Now this is eschatological for David. This means it's something in the future. He's asking for something to come. God has heard and heeded the prayer of David and of his people. And if you turn to Matthew chapter one, you see the evidence of what God has done. The incarnation of Christ. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here's how God did it. Christ came fully God and fully man. Lived a sinless life because he's fully God and fully man. Then he died on the cross in our place. He he took our sin upon us. He he bore the wrath of God on the cross and died for us. Now, let me go back to my conversation with the young college student yesterday. So this brilliant man says, you know, Christianity, the Bible goes further in, in the New Testament and Christianity, and it has all this complicated stuff about Jesus. This is literally what this brilliant man says. All this complicated stuff about Jesus. But here's the real essence of of what the Bible's saying. We need to do like Jesus and do good. So literally we're riding down the road and he looks at me like, I said, you're missing the point. I agree with everything he said till that moment. Everything. He's completely right about total depravity. He's completely right that we're all deeply dark. He's completely right, but he misses it right there. And he's missing it for one fundamental reason. If all you look at, now pay attention here, if all you look at is the cross, in your warped sinfulness, you can come to the conclusion Jesus died to be your example. But there are two things in the Bible that bookend the cross the incarnation that God took on flesh and what is it? The resurrection. Oh, we have this pesky little resurrection here. Why? So I said to my friend, why did Jesus rise from the dead? He shrugged. I said, simple answer. To prove what he claimed, that he was the incarnate son of God. He, he rose from the dead to prove 
He is God. I said, so here's the answer. If that didn't happen, there's no Christianity. And your psychologist is right. So if you're an intellectual in the room and you've narrowed it all down to that, and if there's no resurrection, by the way, 1 Corinthians 15 makes this argument. I'm a fool and this whole gathering of people are fools. But Christ has risen. Christ has risen from the dead. For you logical people, you got to disprove it. And by the way, I just offer up a book to you, uh, The Case for Christ, written by Lee Strobel. He was a, a journalist who decided he was going to set out and actually disprove for all these stupid Christians there was no resurrection, and it didn't work out for him. I'll just let you know that. Now, there's something further here that's, that, that David is doing. It's eschatological in two ways. And we got to go back to the psalm to grasp it for us. So salvation has come out of Zion. Christ came from among Israel, from among God's people. He has saved us from our sin through the cross and the power of the resurrection. Yet, at the same time, we're still being devoured. We're still being consumed by this world gone nuts. And it's getting absolutely worse every day for us here in the United States. And it's going to get even worse until Jesus comes. So what are we crying out for as Christians when we say, oh, that salvation would come from Zion? We're crying Revelation chapter one, verse seven. And from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, that is the resurrection and the ruler of the kings of the earth, that is, he's the righteous judge, to whom who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierce him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So the coming of Christ is a cause of rejoicing for God's people. Now notice, if I go back to the Psalm, it concludes in verse 14, I mean, verse seven, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So when it comes to this moment of, of Christ coming and setting everything right, he says, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So I got a little Bible trivia question. Are Jacob and Israel the same person? Yeah, they are. So why the distinction? Why does it say, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad? This is good because the word Jacob means deceiver. So let's work our way back up in the Psalm. Let the one who does not do any good rejoice that Christ has saved the sinner. Let Jacob rejoice. Israel, who's Israel? That's God's people. That's God's covenant people. Those who are saved by God or kept by God, let them be in an eternal state of glad. Let them be glad. So brothers and sisters, we, we as glad people say, come Lord Jesus, come. So let me sum up my argument up to this point. Here's where you ought to be in the sermon, I hope. I am the problem. Jesus is the answer. Now listen to me. If you add 1B, I am the problem. I need to do something to fix it. I have had more than one person say this to me when I'm sharing the gospel. Yeah, preacher, you're right, you're right. I need to get saved. I need to, I need to do better before I get saved. 
You totally missed what I just said. That's what I always say. You totally missed what I just said. There is no better. There is no better. That's what you got to come to admit. There is no better. That you are the problem. That sin is the problem. And Christ is the answer for your sin. So I come to the concluding question. This works out of verse 7 and ties everything together. Do I long for the Lord to bring salvation? Do I long for the Lord to bring salvation? That salvation has come and is coming. Now let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, set you apart completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for God's people, the coming of Jesus is not something to dread. And here's a promise in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now I want to speak to you practical atheists in the room. And if I haven't said anything convicting up to this point in the sermon, this next statement is going to convict probably a lot of you. Here's the most practical atheistic statement that I hear in Gastonia. I want Jesus to come back, just not right now. It's real quiet in the room. I want Jesus to come back, not right now. If you said to that me personally, there's another question coming from me. Why? Well, I, I want to I wanna spend time with my family, to, which I want to say to you with respect and love, I hear what you're saying. You need to study your Bible and understand what family really is and who your family really is. Well, I got a lot of things I want to experience, really. Stuff you want to do, your way. Folks, we're too centered on this world And the reason we get centered on this world is a sinful heart. The greatest salvation that Christ can bring is to bring us into his very actual presence and to make us like himself. That is the culmination. It's called glorification. That is what the believer longs for. It is he who has justified us. It is he who has made us blameless. And it is he who has set us apart, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus, that we would more reflect him in our actual lives. And the Bible promises here, he is faithful and he will do it. So brothers and sisters, friends who have gathered here, Are you ready for the day when the judge comes? Number two, are you longing for the day when the judge comes? 
you must first trust in Christ alone for your salvation, alone. Confessing that you are sinful and there's nothing you can do to save yourself and that Christ has done everything on your behalf, that he died on the cross in your place and rose again to prove that he is Lord and that that same resurrection, you're crying out in repentance, turning from your sin, that that same resurrection power be applied to your heart to make your old life new. And that new life immediately longs for Jesus. You may not get it all straight, but as he is sanctifying you completely, you more and more and more long for Jesus. Here's what I think some of you want. You want just enough Jesus to get to heaven, but not enough to interrupt your life. That is not salvation. That is a form of religion that you have created your own manageable deity to stay out of your world. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. He will not be divided. So will you humble yourself today, confess your sin, and cry out to Christ to save you. And to those who have Israel, be glad as we sing. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we plead, we ask that you would save souls, that there would be people who confess their sin and repent of their sin now and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will not get up and walk out of this room without, without making it right with you today by trusting in you. Then give them the courage either to tell a pastor right now or to come out into the lobby and share that with someone else, with one of us as pastors or, or the person they came with today. God, save souls, we pray. And for those whom you've saved, make them glad. And may we now rejoice in Christ who is alone, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.